preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction the following message is brought to you by George Lawson Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and uh, let's open up to 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, for a, another week as we continue our look at the quiet strength and hidden beauty of a godly wife. The quiet strength and hidden beauty of a godly wife. And it will be a, another week before we get to the characteristics of a godly husband. And if you're looking ahead, you'll notice that the husbands get only one verse in verse 7 and the wives have six verses, one through six, and it could seem like, you know, the wife is burdened underneath this weight of six verses while the men get to skate by with only one verse. And uh, maybe that's how you've thought about this, this passage. It's just not fair that Peter spends all this time harping on the women and lets these men get away with only one verse. You know, maybe, maybe Peter is a, a woman hater, but there's a, a good reason for the emphasis on the women here, and uh, it's not because the Bible was written by chauvinistic men who promoted the oppression of women, as some feminist authors have argued. Uh, there's one feminist author by the name of Mary Daly uh, who wrote the book Beyond God the Father, actually arguing that we need to get beyond this idea of God as Father and also include God as Mother as well. Uh, she argues this, that the authors of the Old and New Testaments were men of their times and that it would be naive to think that they were free of the prejudices of their epics, which is a direct attack against the doctrine of inspiration, uh, which states that all Scripture is not inspired by men, but all Scripture inspired by who? Inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. This is the word of God. And in Psalm 12 and verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So these are not uh, the mere words of men that are tainted with human opinions and prejudices, and they're far from being bound by the, the time that they were written in. Uh, these words of Scripture are the eternal words of God. As First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 25 says, The word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, so what Peter is writing here is the pure and unadulterated truth of, of God. And this is the truth, only the truth, and nothing but the truth. Uh, but why does it seem here that the guys are getting off the hook with only one verse? Number one, have you looked at the verse for the guys? <laughs> First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says, You husbands in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. There's, there's the threat of not even being heard by God if the men refuse and are unwilling to submit to the truth that's found in verse 7, and that the women don't have that similar kind of threat. There's also passages like Ephesians chapter 5, that flip the percentages around instead of giving the bulk of the verses to the women, it gives the bulk of the verses to the men. There's three verses for the wives in Ephesians 5 and nine verses for the husbands. So if you're just counting verses, uh, there's another passage that places the weight on the side of the husbands. And third, you need to understand the context of 1 Peter. Now, before you make any kind of uh, conclusions, you need to understand the context of 1 Peter. The believers that Peter is writing to in this book were dealing with an evil and unbelieving society that turned against them. The, the Christians were experiencing opposition from every sector of society, and the opposition eventually became so great that even the government would pick up the sword against them. And wherever there was a legitimate form of authority, it was corrupted to persecute the believer. 
an unbelieving world slandered the believers as evildoers. An unbelieving government was increasingly hostile and foolish and eventually persecuted. Believers believing the society that said that these believers are evildoers. And then Peter addresses the relationship between Christians and unbelieving masters who are sometimes harsh and unreasonable. So why spend more time addressing the wives in 1 Peter? Because the wives were under a legitimate form of authority, which was often corrupted. And they would have needed more help to deal with the corruption that they faced, even within their own homes at times. So Peter spends more time addressing the wives than addressing the husbands, because the wives would have had a harder time than the husbands would. If a husband converted to Christianity, the wife would have been expected to follow him. But if a wife converted to Christianity, the wife would have been on her own. The husband wasn't expected to follow the wife and her faith. There's actually a Greek philosopher by the name of Plutarch who said, it is proper for a wife only to recognize those gods whom her husband worships. So the wife would have been in a difficult position of committing her life to Jesus Christ, submitting to him as her Lord. And now she has to deal with the husband who says, but that's not my God. That's not my God. So it was not friendly to those women who found a new faith and They're the people who would need more help, and that's what Peter tries to offer is more help for the ladies. So Peter includes a longer address to the wives than to the husbands out of love and concern, not from a desire to keep the wives under control. And what were the wives instructed to do? Number one, they were encouraged to exercise a quiet strength. We looked at that in verses one and two, which is one of the ways that you can view this idea of submission as a quiet strength, being submissive. Uh, essentially a word that means to, to fall in line, to fall in rank, to fall in order. And again, this is not just a command that's given to the ladies. Citizens submit to their governments. Slaves submit to their masters. Children submit to their parents, authority. Church members submit to their elders. And all of us submit to God. First Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority. It's a command again for all of us. And I call this Quiet strength, submission, quiet strength, because this kind of submission can be exercised without a word. Again, in verse one, it says that an unbelieving husband can be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And the believing wife might not even be able to get an opportunity to share what she believes because the husband doesn't want to hear it. So if a wife can't share her faith with her words, does that mean that she's powerless? You know, the answer is is no. The quiet strength of her life can still be used to win him even without a word. What's going on here is much more important than just what we hear. It's also what we see. And this husband can be won over by what he sees, even if he doesn't want to hear it. He may be able to tune out what she says, but he can't tune out how she lives. And even when all the missionaries and pastors and evangelists can't get through to this guy, this woman who lives a consistent and godly life can be used to break the hardened heart. That's the quiet strength of a godly wife, that even when words can't reach this man, that her quiet submission can, and it's precious in the sight of God. And this submission is to be exercised in the same way that the other commands are. It's a predictable pattern. Uh, This wife's submission is for the Lord's sake and only to what is right. We looked at this last time. We're never commanded to submit uh, to anything that's sinful, but only to what's right. And this godly woman well, a godly woman is called to do what is chaste and respectful and what is right. And this submission has this powerful potential, uh, which is stated there that they may be won. To win is a word used for financial profit, but in this context, it speaks about uh, souls being saved for eternity. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, uh, Paul talks about uh, winning those and saving some, you know, that, that he became weak uh, to those who were weak, that he might win the weak. Uh, to, to become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. To win what's to save. And a husband can be led to the consideration of Jesus Christ through a godly woman's faith. He can be won. He can be saved uh, through that example. And that's all review from the last time we were together. Uh, we considered that quiet strength of a godly wife. But in verses 3 to 6, Peter turns to this quiet strength from the quiet strength of a godly wife to the hidden beauty of a godly wife, the hidden beauty of a, of a godly wife. And let's take a look at First uh, Peter again, chapter 3. I'll start at verse 1 for the sake of context. 
It says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Why don't you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, today as we always do, Lord, asking for your help. We need your help every time we open this book. Now, Father, this is your word. You're the author of this book, and we come to the author to understand the meaning of the book. And uh, Father, I I pray that you would allow us to submit ourselves to the authority of this word, understanding that this word is sufficient for all of life and godliness, that we have everything that we need. This word is a sufficient word for us. Uh, So Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to to gain all that we can to, to behold wonderful things as we look into your word and that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're probably familiar with the name John Wesley. He's the, the founder of Methodism and Methodist churches, and uh, he was known for his evangelistic and revivalistic preaching. But what you may not be familiar with is his marriage to a woman by the name of Mary Vazay, uh, uh, V-A-Z-I-E-L-L-E, uh, who is also known as Molly. Listen to this account from a church history review. It says, less than three years after a failed engagement, John Wesley was becoming interested in another potential wife, Mary, also known as Molly Vizay. His unwillingness to consult with his brother Charles in this new romance was completely understandable, but of course, it is exactly what he should have done. His reluctance to take counsel in this vitally important decision was to lead to 20 years of unhappiness both for him and for his future wife. Molly Vizay, widowed for three years, but wealthy, had shown an interest in spiritual things, and Wesley wrote to her in 1750. Charles Wesley and his wife Sally already knew Molly and were not impressed. John, however, was impressed and said as much to her in what he probably considered a glowing letter. He said he appreciated her industry, her exact frugality, her uncommon neatness and cleanness. She must have been beside herself with delight. He was careful to add that this uncommon neatness and cleanness extended to her person, her clothes, and to all those things around her. He merely announced to Charles and Sally his intention to marry. Charles, his brother, was thunderstruck and filled with dread. At the next service, church service, John announced that he was to marry Molly Vizay. Charles, commenting on the response of the congregation, said, "'It made all of us hide our faces.'" In mid-February 1751, just a couple years after his previous engagement disaster, John Wesley was married. His strategy for being a good husband was pretty simple. He said, I cannot understand how a Methodist preacher can answer it to God to preach one sermon or travel one day less in a married than in a single state. Otherwise, in other words, he wasn't going to change his schedule at all. He was going to continue to, to preach, to travel, and do nothing at all because he was now married to a wife. At first, Molly accompanied him, but his travel schedule, by any standard through all church history, was relentless, and she, as a newly married 40-year-old woman, was clearly hoping for some normal domestic joys. Often absent for weeks at a time, Wesley gave his wife permission to open up all the mail that came to him. This included many letters from women seeking guidance and counsel, and Molly soon began to feel that some of them had more than a little affection towards her man. Her jealousy increased, as did her sense of being overlooked by him. And even unloved by him, she began to be not only troubled, but gripped by jealousy. She wrote disgruntled, critical letters to him. She traveled to spy on him. She sent his private papers directly to his enemies that they might slander him. Eventually, she publicly and repeatedly accused him of adultery over a period of 20 years. On several occasions, she left home, only returning after he begged her repeatedly Although he had been unspeakably angry with her, he kept aiming at reconciliation, but the home life was unhappy, and John Hampson of Manchester once entered a room unannounced to find Molly 
dragging her husband across the floor by his hair. Finally, she left for good. Wesley Riley reported in his journal, I did not forsake her, I did not dismiss her, and I will not recall her. He should have consulted with his brother Charles. He should have asked for wisdom from other leaders. He should have been prepared for marriage. He should have considered his wife's needs more than his own. In all this, the story of Wesley's marriage is an unhappy one, but if it is uncomfortable for us to read, let's not forget that it was far more uncomfortable for him to live and equally uncomfortable for Molly, who perhaps was merely hoping to have some of him to herself. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from this account of John Wesley's life. But did you notice what attracted John Wesley to Molly? He said he appreciated her industry, her hard work, her exact frugality, she was thrifty with money, and her uncommon neatness and cleanness that extended to her person, her clothes, and all things around her. Why, why was he drawn to Molly in the first place? He was drawn by her outward adornments. It was almost as if her spiritual interest was just an added benefit rather than the substance of his interest, and the rest is literally history. Now, we're not setting John Wesley off the hook because he is responsible. <laughs> if, if you're saying I'm going to change nothing about my travel schedule, neglect uh, my relationship with uh, my wife, uh, have these women who are writing me for counsel, shame on them. <laughs> shame on them. This was wrong of Wesley. But also what was wrong of Wesley is being attracted to this woman merely because of what he saw on the outside. That's what attracted Wesley to this woman. And it's obvious that the beauty that John and his wife Molly focused on was not the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's uh, pretty hard to convince everybody that you're gentle and quiet while you're pulling your husband around by his hair. <laughs> a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. And Peter says, ladies, if you're concerned about the testimony of Christ and about beauty in the sight of God and about a godly legacy that will last beyond your lifetime, you'll be less concerned about how coordinated the colors of your clothes are this morning and more concerned about how coordinated your Christ-likeness is of your character is, right? The Christ-likeness of your character. You'll be more concerned about that. It will be more important to you that your godliness complements your faith than if your dress complements your figure. And the time you take to accent and accessorize what we can see will be exceeded by the time you take to arrange and adorn what we can't see. And the better question to ask before you're, you leave the house is not, you know, does this outfit make me look fill in the blank, but does this attitude make me look ungodly? That's, that's the more important question. Does this attitude make me look ungodly? This is where we go from preaching to meddling. But it's exactly where the text takes us because Peter is concerned about how you dress to come to church today. Now you dress every day of the week and uh, he's already picked out your wardrobe for you. But what Peter does in this section is he focuses on a wardrobe that many of us uh, may have overlooked. He sets up this contrast between external beauty and the hidden beauty of the heart. External beauty of the world in verse 3, the hidden beauty of the heart in verse 4, and then in verses 5 to 6, to support his arguments, he points to the holy examples of the past, godly women of the past. So first of all, let's take a look as Peter exhorts the, the women of godliness not to depend on external beauty. Look at verse 3 again. It says, your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. It's a, a command in verse 3. Literally, let it not be external. Let it not be from without. Let it not all be on the outside. That, that word external, uh, exothen, is the same word that we find in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, where Jesus speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside, externally, appear beautiful, but inside, they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And for the outside of the cup, you clean the outside of the cup, and the dish, but inside, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. And it's a reminder to us that the actual product can be very different than what's advertised. And in a similar way to the scribes and Pharisees, we can be put together on the outside, but the inside can be filled with all manner of uncleanness. And again, 
keep in mind that this is not only an exhortation to the ladies, this is an exhortation to all of us, right? With that, that phrase, in the same way. There's things that we as men and all of us in the church can learn, whether you're married or not, from this text. Are you focused more on what comes on the outside, what people can see, or are you more concerned about what's going on on the inside in your heart? In a very similar way that the scribes and Pharisees can be put together on the outside, the inside can be filled with all manner of uncleanness. And like Molly Vizet, you can have an uncommon neatness and cleanness that extends to your clothes and all things around you, but you're dragging your husband around by the hair when nobody's looking. And it's much better to be cleaned on the inside than to be dressed up on the outside. And what does depending on external beauty look like? You know, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. All this, is, is what, all this was what Peter calls adornment from the Greek word cosmos, where we get our English word cosmetics or cosmetology from, this word cosmos. That's the same word that we get our English word cosmos, you know, the, the reference to the universe that we live in. It's a term that's used for an orderly arrangement or, or bringing chaos into order. And the point that Peter is making is not that we should have no concern for external beauty at all. I mean, if, if you wake up in chaos, we'd appreciate if there's some order, you know, put to that before you, you, you show up, you know, before we see you. You know, as uh, Jane, J. Vernon McGee used to say, if the, the barn needs painting, then paint it, Right? The Bible is not against external beauty. We actually have several examples of women in Scripture who were knockouts, right? Uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham said, see now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Genesis 24, 16, it says the girl was very beautiful. Rachel, Jacob's wife. Genesis 29, it says Rachel was beautiful of form and face. And Esther, who became the king of uh, became the, the wife of King Ahasuerus in uh, Esther 2 and verse 7. It says, now the lady was beautiful of form and face. And Jennifer, well, uh, no, that's, that's not there. <laughs> that's, that, that's in the first, first book of George, right? First book of George. And then when you read through the Song of Solomon, it's filled with praise for his wife's beauty. And after he analyzes Every part of her frame, Song of Solomon, he says in verse, chapter 4 and verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. And we'll leave that right there for now. <laughs> because the Song of Solomon is detailed in this expression of love towards his spouse. But all of that to say that the Bible is not against physical beauty. God himself is a God of order and made creation pleasing to the eye. But when beauty is only skin deep and external beauty is a replacement for the hidden beauty of the heart, it becomes repulsive in the sight of God. Isaiah writes about the, the ladies of Jerusalem. Why don't you flip back to Isaiah real quick, Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah writes about the ladies of Jerusalem in the 7th century B.C. who were known for their external beauty and not the hidden beauty of the, the heart. And listen to what Isaiah says about these ladies who focus merely on the outside. It was all external. Look at chapter 3 and verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps, you know, these kind of little, little steps, to draw attention to themselves. They walk along with these mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet, you know, drawing again attention to themselves, purposely walking in a way that would draw attention. And walking with these little steps, I'm, I'm walking and you can hear me every time I take a step. It says, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. Look at verse 20, 24. It says, now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefication, instead of a belt, a rope, instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp, instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Basically, what the Lord is saying is that the ugliness of their pride and seduction and self-glorification will come out on the outside. That's what's inside of their heart. That's how they really look on the inside. That's what I'm seeing when I look at these women of, of Zion. And that ugliness on the inside is just going to come on the outside. 
And you can read through this list in Isaiah to see the, the kind of attention they gave to the outside of the cup when the inside was full of uncleanness and dead men's bones. And the way they dressed was a display of their hearts. And God knows, right? God knows why you dress the way that you do. Did you choose what you wore today to draw attention to yourself? Is there a motive for self-glorification? A desire to impress somebody? To gain a reputation? Whether that's men or women, you just want to gain a reputation with people among your friends? Could it be that in your heart you were hoping to seduce somebody? Make them look twice? Even draw out just a, just a little bit of desire? Not too much, just a little bit. Just want to draw out a little bit of desire because you like the attention. And if you did that today, that is ugly. It's ugly. And if you don't care about protecting your brothers in Christ who are trying to guard their eyes and sanctify their hearts, that is ugly. And if you're tempted to wear clothes that draw attention to what you have or don't have on because the tops are too low, the bottoms are too high, the fit is too tight, it could be a reflection of the heart. And again, God knows. God knows. And sometimes what people do with the outside is only a way to make up for what they don't have on the inside. And the ladies of Jerusalem in the 7th century BC went overboard in the attention they gave to their physical appearance, just as the ladies of the 1st century in the Roman Empire. And Peter says, don't let all of your beauty be on the outside. Again, look at uh, 1 Peter 3 and verse 3. He says, your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. And the idea is that the outside should not be the focus. Braiding of the hair had become a a highly cultivated art form. And and, and jewelry, in some cases, was even braided into the hair. Now, the future wife of the Roman emperor Caligula, who preceded Nero, was said to have appeared at an ordinary banquet. This this wife of this, this emperor, who was to be the wife of an emperor, she appeared at an ordinary banquet, you know, nothing special. But she appeared at this bank with, with emeralds and pearls on her head, her hair, her eyes. How did she pull that off? I'm not sure. She had jewels on her eyes, her neck, her arms, and her fingers. And now she wore it on her eyes. Again, just a mystery to me. But this is how she's described. Everywhere you look, she's got jewelry in the hair, on the eyes, on the head, on the neck, on the fingers. Everywhere you look. Why do you think she dressed like that? <laughs> It was to draw the attention. It was to draw the attention. Golden ornaments, golden hairnets, rings, gems, fine clothing became a way to attract attention, to flaunt your wealth. Many of the statues from this time, paintings, coins, show the attention that the the women gave to fashion, but all of it was merely external. You could put it on and you can take it off. (laughs) It's temporary, it's fading. And after enough time, it would all decay and perish. And again, the the point is not that braiding the hair and wearing gold is off limits to the Christian. That's not the point. I once attended a church back in college where the ladies were told that they couldn't wear gold at all, not even a wedding ring, you know, because it would somehow be a violation of of this verse. That, that That is a misrepresentation of what this verse says. In some Pentecostal circles, ladies won't wear makeup because of these verses, But if you're going to be consistent and you're going to use this verse, then you can't wear a dress either. So go figure. Because Peter says also putting on dresses. Let not your adornment be putting on dresses. And the King James says putting on apparel. So uh, go ahead. (laughs) If, If that's what you're going to do. It's just the word for a garment, a cloak, a tunic of any kind. Don't put anything on if you're going to read it in that way. That's not Peter's point. Obviously... It's not Peter's point. Peter's point is not that you shouldn't wear clothes, but that your beauty shouldn't be dependent on your clothes. It's much deeper than that. It's not just on the outside, and he contrasts that with the hidden person of the heart. Look at verse 4, 1 Peter 3. It says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The, The greatest attention should be placed on the inner person person that can't be seen with the eyes. And it's a lot harder to fake what's going on on the inside than what's happening on the outside. Because your character can't be covered up by a little makeup. You know, Maybelline has nothing on this, right? 
Now, how is this going to be covered up? What's going on on the inside? Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. You know, beauty is only skin deep if it's all about what's on the outside. And Jewish teaching spoke about women who adorn their heads and faces in order to deceive the mind. You know, they, they put on the show on the outside because they don't want you to see what's beyond that. In other words, it's a distraction from what their real character is. But once you're able to get beneath the surface past the external beauty, there's often something that's much different on the inside. And what's, what's the real character like? You know, a, a ring of gold can't cover that up. You know, Proverbs 11 and verse 22 says, A ring as a ring of gold in a swine snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. <laughs> you know, they may be beautiful on the outside, but they're still a pig. <laughs> right? That's what it says. A ring of gold in a swine snout. You can't, you can't just make it up on the outside. There's got to be something changed on the inside. In Isaiah 3, once the Lord took away all the decorations from the women of Jerusalem, we read that already, and what was left? What was left after all the beauty's gone? All the anklets, the headbands, the ornaments, the dangling earrings, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Isaiah 3, after all that is removed, when all that is taken away, what's left? You're left with an ugly, proud, seductive, self-glorifying woman. That's what you have in Isaiah 3. And you can't fake the inner beauty. And a day in the salon is not going to change that. It's got to come from the inside. Peter calls it the hidden person of the heart. The word for for hidden is the the Greek word kryptos. You you hear the word cryptic maybe in that word. You know, something that's hidden. You know, hear a lot today about cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency. Now, what do we mean by that? It's, it's currency that's non-physical. It's intangible. You can't hold it in your hands, but it doesn't mean that it's not real. And the beauty of a godly woman is not something that you can see in a mirror, pull out of a closet, style at the salon, because it's not physical. It's intangible. It's spiritual. And that's what God considers the most precious aspect of who we are, the, the part that you can't see. It's the part that can't be affected by age or Physical decay, it's imperishable. To to perish has the idea of being destroyed, being killed, has the idea of being corrupted, being decayed. Same word is used over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25 to talk about the perishable wreaths uh, that the athletes wore. They were awarded these wreaths, but you know, as soon as you put the wreath on their head, it was already starting to fade a little bit because it's dead. It's dead. And eventually the wreath would have to be replaced. Because it would die and lose its beauty. The beauty doesn't remain. And what the Lord is directing us to is a beauty that remains. Don't just focus on the beauty that's going to fade. Focus on the beauty that will remain. And if your focus is on the beauty of the heart, it can't be ruined. It won't rot. It can't be killed. It won't decay. It will not perish. And it can be more beautiful today than yesterday, right? You know, I love you more today than yesterday but not half as much as tomorrow, right? It's like it can just grow more beautiful every day. That's the kind, of, the kind of beauty that a woman can have. Beauty that's more beautiful every day because they're focusing on the qualities of the inner person. What does it mean to have these kind of qualities? Look again at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Talks about the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit. What does it mean to be gentle? That, that word uh, gentle can easily be misunderstood in our common language today. You know, sometimes we think of gentle as soft, light, sensitive. One definition that uh, Webster gave for this word was to be easily imposed on, spineless or spiritless. But that's not what we're to think about when we think of, of gentle. Uh, Marvin Vincent in his Greek word studies describes Christian gentleness in this way. He says the Christian word describes an inward quality that is related primarily toward God. Christian gentleness or meekness is based on humility, which is not a natural quality, but an outgrowth of a renewed nature. As toward God, therefore, Christian meekness accepts his dealings without murmur, resistance, as absolutely good and wise. As toward man, it accepts accepts opposition, insult, provocation as God's permitted ministers. 
The meek bears patiently the contradiction of sinners against himself, forgiving and restoring those that err in a spirit of meekness. It's when you suffer insult, injury, harshly treated for something that you know you don't deserve, and instead of replying in kind, you bear up under that patiently. And that's what pleases God. And that's one of the preeminent qualities of God's Son, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus is the ultimate example of meekness. 1 Peter 2.23 says, Who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth? While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is the kind of quality that should be true of a godly wife. The greatest injustice that the world has ever perpetrated is the injustice of the cross. If there is anybody who suffered unjustly, it was Jesus Christ. And throughout the book of 1 Peter, Jesus is held up constantly as the example to which none could be greater. Jesus is the perfect example. And instead of Jesus praying on the cross, Father, destroy them, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. He suffered insult, injury, harsh treatment. He did not deserve any of it, but he bore up under that patiently. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, when it says, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As we think about Jesus and this kind of gentle quality that he had, I find it fascinating that both men and women are called to imitate that. Imitate that. And uh, it's kind of interesting when you look at the, the example for marriage. You know, often we think about the, the husband looking to Jesus as the example. You know, we say, well, you know, Jesus is the example for the husband. You know, you look over in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 23, it says, The husband is the head of the wife. Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we look at Ephesians chapter 5 and we say, Jesus is the example for the husbands. And that's absolutely 100% correct. Jesus is the example for the husbands. Jesus is the example of the, of the kind of headship that a husband should have and the kind of loving sacrificial service that he should have towards a wife. So Jesus is the model for the husbands to follow. But when Peter gives instructions to the wife about her role within marriage, who is she to imitate? He doesn't tell her to imitate the church. She is to be an imitation of Christ who is found in the previous context. In, in 1 Peter 1, or 2, 23, it says that you have been called for this purpose, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, listen to this, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And then chapter three opens up with these words, in the same way, you wives. Be submissive to your own husbands. Who's the model of submission for the wife? Jesus is. Jesus is the model of submission for the ladies as well as the model of headship for the husbands. And when we look in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse three, listen to what it says there. 1 Corinthians 11 verse three. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. What's going on here? Christ serves as both the model of submission for the women and the model of leadership for the men. Both sides look to Christ. If we look to a model of submission, who are we to look to as the perfect model? Jesus Christ. If we're to look to for a model of headship, who are we to look to? Jesus Christ. He's the perfect pattern for every believer, for women and for the men. And if meekness represents the ability to suffer, insult, injury, bear up patiently, what we look to is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ modeled that perfectly. And the quietness that's spoken of, again, in 1 Peter 3 is not causing injury. You know, the, the, the meekness is receiving injury without, you know, causing a, a ruckus and insulting back in return. But quietness is like, I'm not going to start it in the first place. And the two qualities here are related. One commentator says, uh, gentleness bears with the disturbances caused by others, and quietness does not cause the disturbance itself. And it, this is the, the portrait of a, of a godly wife. That's the portrait of a, a godly wife. And to, 
to get a better picture of what biblical femininity looks like, we'll look to the example of, of Sarah. But listen to these words by Elizabeth Elliot. She writes this. She writes that, the, that femininity is a word that we often don't hear anymore. We've heard the word feminist quite often in the last couple of decades, but we haven't really heard much about the deep mystery that is called femininity. To me, a lady is not frilly, flouncy, flippant, frivolous, and fluff-brained, but she is gentle. She is gracious. She is godly. She is giving. You and I, if we are women, have the gift of femininity. Very often it is obscured, just as the image of God is, ob- is obscured in all of us. And I find myself in the sometimes quite uncomfortable position of having to belabor the obvious and hold up examples of femininity to women who almost feel apologetic for being feminine or being womanly. I would remind you that femininity is not a curse. It is not even a triviality. It is a gift, a divine gift, to be accepted with both hands and to thank God. Because remember, it was his idea. <laughs> The, the, the role of the, the women in this case, again, like I said, it's to follow after the example of Jesus Christ. And this is the gift of God. And again, remember, this is precious in the sight of God. So let's look at the example of Sarah. We've already looked at the example of Christ, the perfect example. But if you want to see some more examples of what that looks like, Peter says you can look to some of the holy women of the past. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, for in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. If you wanna see some more examples of what uh, this kind of godly submission looks like, you can look to some of the holy women of the past and he refers to Sarah as exhibit A. And this answers at least a couple of common objections to what we find in Peter, okay? Uh, There's this one feminist author, the one that I mentioned before, Mary Daly, who argued that the authors of the Old and New Testament were men of their times, that it would be naive to think that they were free of the prejudices, so this should all be relegated to that time. You know, don't pull out of 2,000 years ago into today. You know, things need to be updated, things need to be changed. But when you think about Peter, when he looks to an example, does he look to a current example, a contemporary example? He actually looks back 2,000 years from his time, 2,000 years ago. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, would have lived over 2,000 years before Peter, and conservative estimates place the death of Sarah at 2029 BC. So Sarah wasn't viewed as some like kind of obscure, you know, person of the past, has no relevance for today. I mean, certainly we don't look to Sarah. That's 22,000 years ago. I mean, please, we don't do that. And that's the same way that people look at, as we look to the Bible of the New Testament to say, you know, please, that's 2,000 years back in history. We we surely aren't going to look to that. It's not contemporary. It's not relevant. Why are we to think of something written 2,000 years ago as relevant to today? Because Peter did. (laughs) He had the same example. And secondly, there are some interpreters who say that, you know, submission that's taught in this passage is only an evangelistic strategy. You know, this is not submission that all wives are to submit to their husbands. This is only if you find yourself in a position where your husband is unsaved, then you submit to him just so you can try to win him to the faith. But, but that's not really what all women are supposed to do, you know, because there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, 28, which is a misrepresentation of that passage. But the example that Peter gives is not of a wife married to an unbelieving husband, but of Sarah, who is married to Abraham, the father of the faith. So wives are commanded to submit to their husbands, not if their husbands are disobedient to the word. That's not when they submit. But even if they're disobedient to the word, meaning that it's cross, whether it's you know, a, a believing spouse or an unbelieving spouse. Submission applies to every relationship. And we can learn from the example of, of Sarah. But the question that's asked at this point is, how are we to learn from Sarah? Because there are some aspects of Sarah's life that that don't seem like we should be following. Uh, Why don't you flip back to to Genesis chapter 12? We're going to be in in Genesis and just take a a look at the life of Sarah just real briefly. But back in Genesis chapter 12, uh, we find an example that doesn't seem like it's uh, uh, very impressive. (laughs) Genesis Chapter 12, look at verse 11. Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 11. I'll start at verse 10. 
It says, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Came about when he came near to Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's official saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. At this point, you're wondering, um, Lord, is, is this uh, the kind of example that you really, really want me to pay attention to? Look at Genesis chapter 20. You, you would have thought that Abram would have learned his lesson. But second verse is same as the first. Genesis chapter 20, look at verse 1. It says, now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said to his wife, said of his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the women you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said he's my brother, and the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all of his servants, told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you? Like, what have I done? That you brought on me and all my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. When Sarah submitted to her husband and said, I'll I'll say that I'm your sister, was Sarah doing the right thing? No, she was doing things that ought not to have been done. What, what she was doing was wrong. And we are never called to submit to what is sinful, but only to what is right. And a, a godly woman is only called to do what is chaste, respectful, and right. And this is not chaste, respectful, or right. This is not the model of submission that we're called to imitate in this case. So what is the model of submission that we're called to imitate? What is the model? We have a couple features that are mentioned in uh, chapter 3 of First Peter. And uh, what we find is that there are qualities about Sarah that we can imitate. And just, just stay in, in Genesis, and uh, I'll just go ahead and read down through this list of qualities that we find in First Peter. Number one, Sarah was filled with hope. That, that word hope is used in, in Scripture to speak about not just a wish, but a certainty and a guarantee. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. And that's the kind of hope that's attributed to Sarah. Flip over to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. And it's not that she always displayed this kind of hope. In in Genesis 16, we remember that uh, Sarah had a lapse of faith even when she was given a promise. You know, she heard the promise that there would be a child that would be produced by them. And in Genesis 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, and had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go to my, into my handmaid, my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai. So, so we have this initial doubt that Sarai displays. But that's not all that characterized her faith. Listen to the words of Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, you have the hall of faith. We're often reminded of people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but do you remember that we have some ladies that are mentioned in that text as well? The Hall of Faith? 
In Hebrews chapter 11, listen to what it says about Sarah. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who promised. So it's true that, a, uh, that Sarah lapsed in faith, but she still had a confidence in God that somehow God is going to make this promise come about. She still had a hope. What does it look like to follow the faith of Sarah? It looks like considering God faithful even when it looks like all hope is lost. After this point when uh, she thought that, you know, maybe Hagar is going to be the solution, she later, later had to trust in God that, no, God is going to be the solution. Even though it's been years since the promise was made and I don't see any evidence of it being fulfilled, that I still hope in God. Sarah was a faith, uh, had a faith uh, filled with, with hope. She was filled with hope. Number two, Sarah was adorned with submission. I'll flip back to Genesis chapter 12. Think about the, the life of Sarah, what she was subjected to. We have a husband who's called by God. He's called to leave his home, travel to a land that they did not know. Look at Hebrews, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 12 again, starting at verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now some of you ladies uh, might be asked to, to prepare for a trip, but I'm not sure that any of you have been asked to prepare for this kind of trip. Leave your home, everything that you know, and go someplace that you don't know. You don't know the land that you're going to, but you're called to follow this man. And in all of these travels, as Sarah's following Abraham, going to who knows where, there's not even a map. You know, it's not like, you know, hey, did you check the map? You know, hey, go, go, go get directions. You know, stop being, you know, the typical man. Ask for directions. There are no directions to ask for. Abraham's just journeying. He's just walking. He's just traveling. And who's behind him? Sarah's right there with him, traveling to who knows where. So Sarah was this model of submission. She was adorned with submission. She submitted to her husband Abraham and to the will of God for her life, which meant leaving everything that she knew. Number three, Sarah was marked by respect. And this is the, uh, turn over to, to Genesis chapter 18. This is the, the specific instance of obedience that's referred to back in 1 Peter chapter 3, in Genesis uh, chapter 18, and look at the, the way that it's spoken about her, her uh, this respect that she has. It says, now the Lord appeared, this is uh, Genesis 18 starting at verse 1, it says, now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door at the heat of the day, when he lifted up his eyes, looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth, and said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought, wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go in, since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. He was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then he said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old? Shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, I, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? The point of time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. You can stop right there. As you look at this text, you may be wondering, like, why, why, why is this pointed out as, uh, you know, some kind of mark of respect for Abraham? You know, here she's not trusting and the word that's spoken by the Lord, you know, it seems like she's mocking. But did you notice 
how she referred to her husband. Look at verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure, for, uh, have pleasure my Lord being old also? Sarah, in her mind, this is not out loud, this is in her mind, so she's not saying this for the benefit of her husband. It was just something that was almost involuntary, involuntary, that when she thought of her husband, she thought of him as my Lord, the, the, the one who's, who's, who has d- dominion over this home. She, she gave him the respect of being the one who was in charge of her house. She thought of him internally as the, the one that I give respect to. He is my Lord. He's my master in that sense. She recognized him in that way. So, so this is actually pointed out in 1 Peter chapter 3 as an example of Sarah's obedience. That this is just how she thought, even in her mind. A place where nobody knows, where nobody can see. You can't see it in a mirror. You can't dress it up in a salon. It was just part of the hidden person of her heart. This is how she thought about her husband. She was marked by respect. Number four, Sarah also did what was right. And also, uh, like I said, Sarah didn't always do what was right. We, we understand that, uh, that not all that Sarah did what was right. But Sarah did do what was right when she followed Abraham and left her home. And also she did what was right when she served these guests without complaint over here in Genesis chapter 18. There's a, you know, Abraham doesn't prepare his wife ahead of time. It's like, you know, hey, uh, you know, next week, you know, about three o'clock on Saturday, you know, I'd, I'd like to prepare a meal for some guests that are coming by. There's none of that going on here. Verse six, Abraham hurried into the tent and said, quickly, Prepare three measures of fine flour. Knead it. Make bread cakes. And he left out, and Sarah got busy doing it. She was a model of doing what was right. Without preparation, she followed her husband. She submitted to her husband. And number five, Sarah lived without fear. And what did that look like? What did that look like for Sarah to live without fear? Somehow, in the middle of all of Abraham's failings and foilings and fumbles and sinning, you have to admit that, you know, looking back at Abraham's life, she still had a confidence the guy was at work. And she stuck with Abraham through all of his weaknesses. You know, to enter into a harem of the Egyptian pharaoh and the, the king of Gerar was not God's will. That was wrong of Abraham. Abraham told his wife to do things that he should not have told her to do, things that ought not to have been done. But when Abraham acted in faith, she also followed her husband. She didn't hold that against him. Well, I, I followed you before. I'm not going to follow you now. You know, look at the mess you got me into before. No, she, she, she didn't look back at that as a reason not to continue to follow Abraham. She acted on faith as she followed him when they left their home. And the specific example of faith that's mentioned in the book of Hebrews is being strengthened to have children. And you may wonder, like, like how is that a, an act of faith? How many of you uh, ladies have had children? How many of you would like to have a child at 90 years old? (laughs) It's an act of faith to say, let it be done to me as the Lord has said. (laughs) 90, 90 years old, she had a child. And she stuck with Abraham through all of this. Sarah was a model, a model. She was a model of hope, a model of submission, She was a model of respect. She was a model of doing what was right. And she was also a model of fear. She was obedient. But do you remember what we remember most about Sarah? Even though Sarah was a beautiful woman in form and appearance, we're not today talking about how beautiful she was, are we? No, we're we're talking about the, the hidden qualities of her heart that were precious in the sight of God. And that's what is imperishable. That's what endures throughout time. It's not about her external beauty. What we've been talking about is Sarah's faithfulness, her submission, her godliness. And that's the kind of quality that the godly women here are to have. A a, a beauty that's more than just skin deep. It's something that's imperishable and something that outlasts your lifetime. And that's the kind of women uh, that we're praying for to have here at Baltimore Bible Church. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you God so much for uh, this time that we spend in your word. Now, Father, we pray that uh, you would allow uh, your word to, uh, to sink deeply within us. Now, Father, that uh, the hidden person of the, the heart that we've read about, 
Uh, that it wouldn't just be true of the ladies, but that it would be true of the men as well. And uh, Father, that as we look at Sarah and, and her life, uh, that as she obeyed her husband, as she was submissive, as she adorned him, herself with submission, as she did what was right, as she wasn't frightened by any fear, as 1 Peter 3 speaks of, my Father, I pray that that would be true of the ladies who are here as well. And Father, that you would help all of us to be more concerned about what we're looking at like on the inside rather than what we're looking like on the outside. Uh, help us to, uh, to be concerned about the hidden man of the heart, uh, which is precious in the sight of God. And may you receive all glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.